There was a time when I was in sixth grade where I got pulled into the principal's office. Has that ever happened to you? Look, if you're homeschooled, you can't answer that question. I got pulled in the principal's office. It was an informal conversation, which it never feels that way. If, you, if you're told to go to the principal's office, it wasn't so much I got called out of class. I remember the principal was like walking around. We we're doing something. And he's like, hey, John, hey, hey, why don't you, uh, why don't you come with me? Take a walk, right? That's where I got all my intimidation tactics. Um, no, but anyway, I was talking to this, this principal. I was almost going to say this guy. Um, didn't feel like that at the time. He's a principal. And uh, he says, John, you know what? I think that... Uh, I think that you, I think that you are the school's cyber bully. And I'm like, what's a cyber bully? <laughs> this was when like cyber bullying, like this was email. There were no social medias. It was like someone sent mean emails from an anonymous email account. And I'm like, I didn't even understand the term. And I'm like, I kind of laugh. I'm like, what do you mean? And he's like, no, I'm serious, John. I think that, I think that you're the, the school's cyber bully. And I'm like, what are you talking? I, I don't know what that is. And he's like, okay, John, you don't know what that is. I'm like, no, I seriously don't know what that is, which I know is the worst excuse to give. Like, oh, I don't know what that is, right? You told a lie. What's a lie? I don't know what that is. Like, that's what it sounded like to him probably. And uh, he was going and, and saying this. And at some point, my parents had to get involved. It was kind of weird. My parents, uh, I don't think it was like such a, they didn't come to the school, but I remember there was some conversation with my parents. And I remember I was like freaked out because I felt like I was getting accused of a crime I didn't even know about. It. I didn't even know what it was. And they were all telling me, you did it, you did it, you did it. And it felt really weird. I, I was really upset. Like you couldn't ever imagine me being upset, could you, right? I was just, uh, I was upset. And I remember talking to my parents and they said, you know what? You're going to have a lot of teachers. You're going to have a lot of principals. You're going to have a lot of bosses, but you're only going to have one mom and one dad. Okay? And what that meant was, I don't care if they get you in trouble at school. If you don't get in trouble with me, not a huge deal. Just until you're an adult and then you can go to jail. But other than that, if you're in my home, I am the one authority that you should worry about. Well, and then it kind of just went away. So that was kind of nice. It, I didn't get in trouble because I didn't do anything wrong. But the point is, a lot of people act like they should be afraid of all these different authority figures in their life. And while there's some validity to that, the truth is, if you get in trouble, your mom and your dad are the most important people, right? If, if they say you're not in trouble, then guess what? When you get home, you're not in trouble. And frankly, if they say you are in trouble, then you're in trouble whether your teacher thinks you are or not. Well, you need to see that when we talk about there being one God, which is what we do at church a lot, you might've heard this, that there's only one God. That means a lot more than you might think it means. What it means is similar to like my parents saying, you have one mom and one dad, which means you, if you're in trouble with us, you're in big trouble. But if you're not in trouble with us, if you're on our good side, it doesn't matter who's opposed to you. Now, today we're gonna look at like seven or eight different chapters in the book of Isaiah. We're not gonna read all of it. We're gonna kind of jump around, but what we're gonna see here, God repeats something over and over again. God's the speaker here. And last time in Isaiah 40, we learned how God is big and majestic and holy. But today what we're gonna learn is that there's only one God. Now you might think, I could move past that from the time I was just a little kid. Well, there's gonna be a lot of different applications that that has for your life, that there's only one God. So please open your Bibles. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 45. That's where we're gonna look first. Isaiah 45. Now you might think, okay, there's one God. That seems like a really basic thing. Can the sermon just be over? After you say there's one God, that's it. Well, no, because God repeats this over and over again in these like eight chapters. We're not gonna look at all of it, but 
12 different times. God says very specifically one phrase. He repeats it 12 times. He says, I am the Lord. He repeats it over and over again. And he's reminding these people that he is the only God that they should fear. When they're tempted to fear all these different gods and all these different big nations and kingdoms, he says, only fear me. I am the only God that you should be worried about. It's interesting. Uh, There are a lot of passages that talk about this. This summer, we looked at one of them, Deuteronomy chapter 6. It says that everyone in Israel should hear and repeat and memorize this saying, that the Lord your God, the Lord is one. So we already studied that this summer. And even in that text, it says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. That's because there's only one God you need to be worried about. You don't need to be worried about pleasing seven different gods, okay? Which I know to you might not make any sense because you grew up probably hearing, yeah, there is only one God. But the reality is for a lot of them, there were competitions of gods in their minds. Maybe you remember studying in Greek mythology, right? Remember in sixth grade, you studied Greek mythology. I remember what all the gods did. They fought against each other, right? If one God was stronger than another, or if one God teamed up with other gods, that was the way they viewed God here. And what they were tempted to think is that our God is not that strong, okay? And that's what these chapters are addressing. Is God really the only God? Check out Isaiah chapter 45, look at verse five. This section, he's talking about this guy named Cyrus, who was a king, who was gonna live 150 years later. God promised, remember he promised how they were gonna go into the exile? Now he's promising they're gonna come back. Look what he says here. He says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I just want you to stop and think, how important is that statement right there? That God is the only God And besides him, there is no God, right? That's simple. That's easy to maybe think of in your mind, but think about what that means. That means you never have to spend your life trying to please some other God. There's not some unknown God out there that you don't know about that like, you know, maybe you can make upset. There's only one God you have to worry about. Just like I didn't have to worry so much about what the principal thought. If my parents said you're in the right, you don't have to worry about there being other gods that compete with your God. That's what he's saying here. Then he says, I equip you, though you do not know me. Who's he talking about? He's talking about this Cyrus guy. He's promising that 150 years after this is written, God is gonna raise up this king that doesn't even know him. And this king is gonna bring the Israelites back into the land, which is exactly what happened. So that's what he's promising ahead of time. But here's what he's saying about this powerful king. Imagine I said, hey, there's gonna be a king or a president that's gonna be in 150 years who's gonna bring America back or whatever, who's gonna take a bunch of people that lived in it, maybe got all exiled to Canada. Imagine Canada took over America. That's kind of weird, but imagine that, right? You're living in Saskatchewan or something. You might not even know where Saskatchewan is, right? You're living in the wilderness in Canada and someone is gonna bring you back to Orange County, right? Or your descendants back, not even you, but your descendants back. He says, I equip you, this king, who's gonna bring these people back. So that, verse six, check this out, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west, that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other, right? So he says it over and over again. I'm the only God that you have to be worried about. So when you think about God being the only God, I want you to think, what are some other things or people or gods that you are tempted to put in God's place? Okay, we talked about this a little bit last time, but what are the gods or the things that you might worship? You might not even call them gods. What are those things or people that you might be tempted to please instead of God. The first big one is yourself, right? A lot of people, most people today, serve themselves. They are their own God. Here's how you know that's true. 
If they say, you know, in life, I'm gonna do whatever makes me happy. I'm gonna follow my heart. I'm gonna do whatever I wanna do. I'm gonna go wherever I wanna go. I'm gonna be whoever I want to be. If that is how you think that you might be worshiping your own God that you've made up, and that's you. You could be worshiping that God. Lots of people today worship the God of, of fame or the God of, of being popular. Right? These are the people that only want to be known by other people. Right? If, if I could say, would you trade your little sibling for a million followers on TikTok, a lot of you would take that deal. Okay? Maybe Instagram. Maybe not. Maybe some of you wouldn't take that deal, but some of you would. If I could um, trade you uh, your little brother for a promise that you were going to play in the NBA one day or the NFL one day or the MLB one day, if you, were, uh, if you had to trade your little sibling, I bet a lot of you would be like, see ya, I'm done, I'm out, right? Okay, a lot of you would do that. So there's things that maybe you'd trade for that, right? So here's the thing. People do that with money. People do that with stuff. People do it with a lot of things. There's a lot of things that you will be tempted to put in God's place. And here's what you need to know. There is no other God besides the Lord. But there's a lot of applications to that. One of the big problems is, as I just think about you guys and think about why is it hard for you to live out this text, one of the hard things is, as you see in verse 7, you might not believe what verse 7 says. It says that God, I, form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Okay. What is he talking about? He's saying that even though you people, these Israelites, are going to go through a really hard time, I made that happen. This is one of the biggest reasons why today, if you grow up and talk to people why they don't believe in God, one of the top reasons that they don't believe in God is they reject what this verse says right here. They think, how on earth could there be a good God in control of all this stuff that's going on? Because it seems like there's a lot of bad stuff going on in the world. And he says here, yeah, that's true. But guess who stands above all that? Guess who's the one who has it all planned out and mapped out? God. And here's why that's important. Because there's not some other God that God is fighting against. He's the only one. He fills up all the space that there is to fill up when it comes to God's. He's in control of every little detail. The big details and the small details of life. That's the first thing I want you to write down for point number one. I want you to see that God is in control of all details of life. God is in control of all details of life. There's one God which means that God is not competing against other gods for control. He's not. And you might say, well, wait a minute. Aren't there plenty of other gods? Aren't there idols that people worship? Yeah, there totally are. But here's the thing. God does not compete with them. You might say, wait a minute. If God doesn't compete with them, then why are we even talking about this? And if he's the only God and there's no such thing as idols, why are we even talking about this? It's because in the end, God will win. God will get the worship and the glory. It's even why in this text he says, hey, I do this so that everyone would know that I'm God. Look at verse nine, Isaiah chapter 45, verse nine. It says, woe to him who strives with him who formed him, okay? <laughs> That'd be like you fighting, wrestling against your dad um, or your mom, I guess. What is this saying? This is a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who formed it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles, okay? He's, he's imagining beauty and the beast right here, okay? You know what, beauty, what happens in the beauty and the beast? What happens? What happens to the tin, uh, not the tin cup, the teacup? What happens? Okay, she breaks, but that's, that's not the point. You know, they come to life, right? Okay, they're talking. So, so when you see this verse, I want you to think of a, like a big pot, like a vase. It grows a big fat mouth, 
big old teeth, um, and just starts squawking, okay? Like it's in Beauty and the Beast, okay? Here's what he's saying. He says, are you guys, do you want to be like, like a, a pot or like a vase that's complaining to the one who made it? Why don't I have handles? That's, that's what he's saying. So what does that mean? It means if you complain about what is going on in life, that doesn't mean there's not some bad things going on in life. What it does mean is it's like your, your pot telling your maker, why did you do it this way? The Israelites had a hard time. Here's why. Because God was going to make things hard for them. He's going to make things really hard. They were going to be disciplined. They're going to be sent away from their land. But he says, no, no, no. Don't complain against what God's doing. He's in control of all the details of life. There's one God. I think the big thing for us to think through, we find that Jesus actually talks about this in Luke chapter 12. He says, if there's one God who's in control of all the details of life, and if you know and love that God, here's one thing that you should never, ever do. You should never worry. You should never be fearful. You should never be anxious. Okay, if I you know, were to ask you the question, how many of you have ever been anxious about things? And sit and wait and think, I don't know what's going to happen to me. I don't know what's going to happen about this. Right? That is one of the biggest problems that people have. Jesus says this in Luke chapter 12. Do not be anxious about your life. It's Luke 12, 22. Don't be anxious about your life, what you eat, and what you put on your body, your clothes, things like that. He says you are of so much more value than even the birds that get fed by your heavenly father. He says, which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to your life? You can't even, you can't even do anything with your anxiety. Why? Because God is in control. Never forget that. God is in control. If something bad happened in this world, it did not happen without God being in control. It did not happen. It did not surprise God. It didn't say, wow, I can't believe, God did never expected that to happen. Right? Nothing, okay? Now, a lot of people take that and say, well, does that mean that God is mean? Does that mean God uh, is evil? Does that mean God does evil things? No, that's not what we're saying. It says he forms it. He, he's, he stands behind all of it, whether good or evil. He does stand behind it. But he's not doing evil stuff. In fact, Jesus says, look at how God has provided for you. And what he does, he starts to look around. He says, God has taken care of the birds of the field. He's taken care of the grass. He's clothed them. Look also, he's clothed you too, right? Once you start worrying, one of the things that you should remember is look around. Look what God has given you. God has been faithful. To you. He's given you good things. For some of you, he's given you great parents. For others of you, he's given you great clothes and great skills. And there's a lot of things that God has given you that are good. And he says at the very end of that passage, he says, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. That's the same message he was giving to these Israelites. Don't be afraid of the bad times you're going to face because he's going to give you something better. If you're in Isaiah 45, look at Isaiah 46, the next chapter. Isaiah 46, look at verse 8. In this chapter, he's saying all the idols that are really strong and powerful that everyone bows down to, God's going to take them out. Isaiah 46, verse 8. He reminds them. He says, remember this. Stand firm. Recall this to mind, you transgressors. He's saying sinful people need to remember this. We need to remember this. Verse 9. Remember the former things of old. What is he reminding them of? Okay. You might be thinking of the Exodus, right? What did God do back then? He was the only God. Who did he defeat in the 10 plagues? Remember what the plagues were about? What were they about? Proving that God was the only God. Proving that the Egyptian gods were nothing. God was proving that. So he says, remember the former things of old. And he says, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Look what God's also able to do. Verse 10, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done. Okay. He's saying before it happened to be like, you know, the World Series just ended last night or two nights ago 
or last night. It was last night? It was last night. So long ago. The Braves have been World Series champions for so long. It's just, um, anyway. All right. So what happened last night? Okay. What if I told you, hey, in um, 62 years, 62 years count. Actually, let's go 150 years. 150 years. Um, this is the roster of both, um, both teams in the World Series. These are the box scores, right? You know the box scores with all the, the numbers and all, all the stuff there. Here, here's what every game is going to look like. Here's what the final score is going to be. Here's the MVP. Here's the person who got the most saves. Here's the person who got the wins. Here's every last detail that's going to happen. And this is going to take place in 150 years. That would be 2,171. Right? Right? Sorry, that took me way too long. I'm good at math when it's on the page. I'm not so good in my head. So the World Series in 2,171 um, on November 3rd, someone's going to win the World Series. You'd be like, there's no way that you could ever know that, right? And lad, you'd say, ooh, you're a time traveler, right? It's like, are they even playing baseball? I heard it's a boring sport. I don't know if it'll stick around. I'm just kidding. No hate baseball. I love baseball. Anyway, but what if I told you everything was going to happen? You say, well, you must know something. And God says, I don't just know it. Look what he says next in verse 10. He says, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. What if I said something different? I don't just know what's going to happen. I'm going to make it happen. Every pitch, every swing, every breath, every chewing of the gum, every single thing that happens, I made it happen. And I'm going to make it happen exactly how I planned it. You'd be like, you're not a time traveler. You're just crazy, right? There's no way you could do that. That's what God's claiming. I want you to see that. That's what God is claiming here. That nothing happens in this world outside of God's command and control. Nothing happens. No evil thing, no good thing happens outside of God's oversight and control in this world. He says, I have spoken. I will bring it to pass. I have purposed. I will do it. Here's the other problem. If we don't believe that, we're going to start doing the problems that the New Testament talks about. In James chapter 4, James 4.13, God warns you and me of something. He warns us of making plans about the future and acting like we're the one making the plans. Okay, here's what he says in James 4. He says, come now, you who say today or tomorrow will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. You don't even know what tomorrow will bring. What's your life? You're mist. Appears for a little while, then vanishes. Was it foggy at your house this morning? Is there fog at your house, right? What happened by lunchtime? Gone, right? He says, that's what you are. You're like fog. Okay, you're here for a little bit, and then you're gone. He says, don't you know that? He says, you should be saying if the Lord wills, we'll do this or that. Right? This kind of recognition that God is in control of all the details in life should keep you from being proud. should keep you from thinking you are in control of all the details of life. Proverbs 16.9 says, the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Right? I know these are just big overarching truths, but I want you to see how they apply to your life. Don't make these plans in your life and say, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. The answer is, if God wills me to. Maybe God doesn't want me to do that. Maybe God doesn't want me to live there. Maybe God doesn't want me to go to that college. That's okay. It's God's plan. I'm fine with God's plan. I'm actually happy because God is in control of everything. Think that through. That's a comfort. That should bring you some comfort. That was Isaiah 46. Look at Isaiah 48. Skipping the passage a little bit further. Isaiah 48, verse 3. Isaiah 
says, the former things I declared of old. So the things that happened a long time ago, I told you that was going to happen. They went out from my mouth and I announced them. So God's saying, I, did, I said those things a long time ago. Then suddenly I did them and they came to pass. You see there, it's not just saying that God has all knowledge, right? That's one thing. If God has all knowledge, that's really impressive. But God has more than just all knowledge. He has all power. He's in control of things. It's not just that he is like some computer, some supercomputer that just knows everything that happened. It's that God not only knows it, he knows it because it's a part of his plan. He planned it and he did it. Verse four, because I know that you are obstinate and that your neck is as an iron sinew and your forehead like brass. He's telling these people, you guys are rebellious. Because he said, because I know that I declared them to you from of old before they came to pass. I announced them to you lest you should say, this is because I didn't want you to say this, that my idol did them, my carved image, my metal idol commanded them. He says, I don't want you to think that some other God is in control. Just like even today, when things happen, I don't want you to think that, oh yeah, that just happened because there's bad weather. Or that just happened because that person's really smart. Or that just happened, like, yeah, they might've happened because of that with, a, with an immediate cause, but there's someone who stands behind all that. It's God, right? Nothing happened without God's oversight. Nothing will happen without God's oversight, whether good or whatever you think, it's not good. He says, light or darkness, calamity or well-being. God's in control. People find a million excuses and reasons why they don't want to believe that. That's something that Isaiah is very clear about. Really, it's God who speaks here. God's really the only talker here. If You know how in the New Testament, some, some of your Bibles have red letters for Jesus talking? Okay, If there were red letters for God talking in the Old Testament, these whole chapters would be just red letters, red letters all over the place because God is speaking here. Okay, Once you see that, I want you to think, okay, if that's true, if God's in control, I don't have to worry. And I also don't need to think I need to plan everything in my future and say, this is what's going to happen. You leave things up to God's will and say, okay, I'm going to make my plans, yes, but I'm going to leave them all up to God's will. If God doesn't want me to do that, that's okay. Now, the command here is don't be rebellious like these people. He says, I, I announced them to you because I just thought you were going to be rebellious. And he's right. God was right about that, obviously. Don't want you to be someone who's rebellious or someone who thinks you're going to get away with stuff. You can also, if you're in Isaiah 48, look back a little bit. Isaiah 47, verse 8. Look at Isaiah 47, verse 8. He talks to Babylon. He's talking to these people who, remember, they were the evil ones, right? But God even used these evil people to do something that he wanted them to do. He used a really evil group of people to take the land of a lesser evil people because the lesser evil people were getting punished, okay? God is so sovereign and in control, he can even do that. But he says to these Babylonians, he thinks, he says, you guys are so proud. You think you're never gonna get, you think you're never gonna get in trouble for your sin. Look at verse eight. This is, now, therefore, hear this, you lovers of pleasure, who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am and there is no one besides me. You see what's funny about that? Look at what the people are saying. Read that again. This is what the people say. Now, this is not what God says. This is what the people say. I am, and there is no one besides me. What's the problem there? That's what God has been saying this whole time. What's God's name again? What does the Lord mean? It means I am, okay? Do you see the problem here? They are acting like they are God. Isaiah's trying to tell us, hey, guys, here's the thing. When you act like you're gonna get away with your sin, you know who you think you are? You think you're more powerful than God. You think you are smarter than God. You th like That's what you're thinking if you're acting like you're going to get away with your sin. Look what he says next. He says, I, 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 won't, be, I won't sit as a widow. I, I won't know the loss of children. Right? I, I'm never going to have anything taken away from me. I'm so powerful and strong. 
Verse nine, these two things shall come to you in a moment, in one day. The loss of children and widowhood shall come upon you in full measure in spite of your many sorceries and great powers of enchantment, right? He's saying, you guys think that you've, you've got it all figured out, Babylonians. You got all your magic arts and all these things that you think you can control the weather and you can control what happens. You can't control squat, okay? You have no control. God has control. Verse 10, you felt secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and knowledge led you astray. And you said in your heart, I am and there is no one besides me. God's been very clear here that you are acting like you're the God. The truth is you're not the God. Point number two, I'd love for you to write this down. Stop thinking that you will get away with your sin. That's the second big implication of there being one God who fills heaven and earth. Stop thinking, if this is you, stop thinking that you'll get away with your sin because you won't. It's a hard one for us to get, but it's true. It reminds me, I was a kid once who goes to this church, I remember I saw him as maybe, I don't know, he's one of your siblings, so I'll say he's between five and eight, okay? And one time I saw this little kid at church had chocolate on his mouth, all over, kind of up on his lip, and, and, and I was talking to him. I said, hey man, how's that chocolate? And he said, I didn't have any chocolate. You didn't have chocolate. Well, you ate some dirt, right? Because you got, got some stuff on you. I was like, I don't have any chocolate, right? Have you ever caught your younger sibling doing this, right? Maybe they took some candy, they stole some candy, and they've got it all in their mouth. And you're like, did you steal my candy? Like, I didn't, I don't have any candy. I didn't, I didn't eat anything bad, right? It's like, well, you know, they're caught, right? They think they're smart. They think they've figured it out, right? Ooh, I ate it all. It's gone, right? No, it's on your face, right? You got chocolate on your face. You didn't get away with it, right? Here's what he's saying. He says, that's what it's like for you and me to think that we can do sinful things and that God will never find out. People won't know. No, it'll never get caught. Nobody will find out. He says this, Proverbs 15, 3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. In Jeremiah, God says this, Jeremiah 16, 17, says, for my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from me, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. The idea, like, God sees it all. God sees every thought, every word, every action, every deed, all of it. He knows the intentions of your heart. Even for some of you who have done good things, he says, I know why you did those good things. You did the good things for a bad reason. I know all of that. God knows it all. When you sin and think you'll get away with it, you're like the person Jesus told the story about in Luke 12. Luke 12, 18, he said there's a rich fool. There's a guy who was really, you know, People thought he was wise, but he's really a fool. He was rich. He had a ton of stuff. And one night, God was going to take him home. He was going to die, so to speak. He was going to be judged the next day. And he says, you know what I'm going to do with the rest of my life? He didn't even know he was going to die. He's like, I'm going to build more barns. I'm going to build a bigger garage. I'm going to put more cool stuff in my garage. And God said, that night, he says, you fool. This night, your soul is required of you. We don't know when judgment is going to take place, which is why if some of you are living in these patterns of sin, you know you're not right with God, but you think for some reason, I'll just get away with it. Nothing's bad is going to happen to me. You're sitting like Babylon, right? You're sitting there ready to get taken out. Just be careful about that. Go to Isaiah 46, verse 5. We skip past this part. Isaiah 46, 5. God asks the people a question. He says, to whom will you liken me? What's the God that you're going to compare me to? If I'm the only God, what's the God you're going to compare me to? 
says, who will you make me equal? Compare me that I may be alike. Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales, hire a goldsmith and make, make it into a god. They take all their stuff and you know, put it in the fire and make it into a god. And it cannot move. Sorry, up at the top. It says, he makes it into a god and they fall down and worship. And then it says, verse 7, they lift it on their shoulders and carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Okay, you can picture this, right? Someone taking all their money and saying, hey, make me, make me an idol. And some goldsmith says, okay, they make this statue. And he says, you know what you have to do? Think this through. People who are bowing down to idols. Your idol, you literally had to throw over your shoulder, carry it, set it down in its place. Okay. And then he says, then you pray to it. It can't hear you. It can't hear you. It, it's not listening. It's just the thing. You made that thing. You should know. It's just the thing. It can't hear you. You may be thinking, I'd never do that. Right? Well, if your God is fame or money or being liked or being popular, it's no different. Right? It's like you carried it, set it up, said this is what my life is going to be about. It's like you're the one who put it there. Right? You can't call the fame and have it respond to you. You can't talk to your money. Right? You can't, it just doesn't work like that. The ironic thing here is God is the one who has carried these people forever. And he's saying, you're trying to worship gods that you have to put on your shoulder. It doesn't make any sense. The New Testament says that for Christians, you need to beware. I'm not talking to just non-Christians, right? This point's not just for non-Christians. Because some of you think, well, that's just for the, the people who haven't repented of their sin, right? That's true. It's for you, but also it's for you Christians, people who are walking with God. Here's why. James chapter 4, verse 4, God calls people out. He says, you guys are cheating on me if you are worldly, if your thoughts and your actions and your words reflect that you're just like the world. He says, it's like you're cheating on me. It's like you're, you're not living properly. He says, whoever makes himself a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Then he says, or do you not suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he puts to, within us? God, I mean, that means God, that God cares. He's given you his spirit. He wants your complete devotion. He wants you to love him. That's why after in Deuteronomy, it says there's one God. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, with all your mind. He says, be careful that even if you're a Christian, you don't get drawn away to start thinking, oh yeah, I'm forgiven. It doesn't matter about my sin. Romans 6 says, should we keep on sinning? Should we just keep on doing all the sinful things that we used to do? So that God would just forgive us over and over again, right? No, by no means, right? We shouldn't walk right into sin, right? So for some of you, maybe your friends are the thing that leads you right into sin. Maybe you know you've got some bad friends that, wa that walk you right into sin. Just be careful about that. Don't, don't be walked right into sin. Don't think you're going to get away with it. Here in Isaiah 46, you can go back and look at Isaiah 44, just jumping around here. Isaiah 44, verse 6. It says, thus says the Lord, okay? This is God talking. The king of Israel, his redeemer, Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last, and besides me there is no God. Okay? You know when Jesus says this in the book of Revelation? He says, I'm the first and the last, the alpha and the omega. You know what he's quoting? He's quoting this right here. Jesus says, I am this God. I am this God. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let them declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Okay? If you want to prove 
that you're as glorious and worthy as God, well then tell me everything that's going to happen in the future. And God's like, well, none of you can do that because I know the future and you don't know it. He says, fear not, nor be afraid, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? You are my witnesses that there is no God besides me. There's no rock, no not any. And then he goes into this section in chapter 44, verse 9 and following. He tells a story, okay? And here's what the story is. He says, if you're going to make a God, here's what you need. You need a log, big, big tree. You just cut this tree down. You need this log, okay? And with this log, you can cut it down at the base of the tree. It'll fall over. Someone will say timber, right? And it'll fall down, okay? Then you need to take it, bring it into town, cut it up. And what you can do with the first half, cut it on up, send it to the person who carves the statues. He'll carve out this amazing statue. And then you can bow down and worship it. Then you can take the rest of it, the scraps, the other half, and then just take it to your house and have it be your firewood. And you'll burn it. And you'll feel really nice and warm. And then maybe you'll even cook some food over it. He says, he says, don't you realize what's happening here? If you are worshiping an idol, you are worshiping something that you made. And then you're burning the other half. Like one half of this idol, right? The thing that you're bowing down and worshiping and giving all this credit and honor to. That's over there in your house. But then you have the other half of it that you're burning in the fire. He says, have you stopped to think about how dumb that is? Okay. You're burning up your eye. Like, it doesn't even make sense because you know it's not true, right? Same thing with the other gods that we talked about, the fame God, the money God. You all know. It's like, oh, I know that's not like the most important thing, but you might act like it. That's why when we say there's one God, that might be an easy thing for us to get in our heads, but it's hard for us to live out that he's the only God that deserves our affection and devotion. Verse 18, Isaiah 44, he says, they know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so they cannot see. God's like, shut their eyes and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire, and also I baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten, and shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes, a deluded heart has led him astray. He cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? It's like he doesn't even, he doesn't even get it. Right, for some of you, you might worship those gods that we talked about before. Maybe not the God of wood and stone, right? You might worship the God of fame and the God of pleasure, right? You want to be liked. Maybe some of you want to listen to certain music that you know you shouldn't, right? And you know that God would say, no, don't do that. But you say, nope, I'm going to do that, okay? You might call these people dumb for bowing down to, a, to an idol, and it is dumb. God calls it dumb. But God says it's no less dumb for you and me to worship and to, what I mean by that is to obey our desires, as opposed to doing what God wants us to do. In the New Testament, it's put like this. 1 John 2, verse 17. The world is passing away along with its desires. It's going away. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Okay? Whoever does the will of God abides forever. For some of you, you might have things in your mind that you know. You think, I will get away with that. I talk that way when I'm on my sports team. I'll get away with it. I'll look at those things, and I'll, I'll get away with that. I'll listen to that, oh, but I'll get away with it. I'll joke like that at school, because I'm going to get away with it. God says, you're, it's like you're sitting like Babylon, saying, I am, and there is no other. Besides me, there's nobody that's going to tell me what to do. God says, no, of course, I'm right here. The question is, is there any hope for you? 
if you worship idols or if you used to worship idols. Maybe you're saying you're a Christian, but you know that you do kind of serve those idols that you've made up in your own heart. Look at Isaiah 42. Turn to your left in your Bibles, Isaiah 42, verse 1. God offers some hope. Here's what he says. It says, behold, my servants. So God's doing something through this person that's going to serve this nation. He says, behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. God cares about this person especially. What does he say? I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations, where the nations did all these evil, terrible things. And God says, no, I'm going to do something special through this person. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice. He won't make it heard in the head of the streets. Even this, a bruised reed he won't break. And the faintly burning wick he will not quench, right? You know, when um, maybe your parents like to burn candles, right? Some of you probably burn candles, right? Where it gets to the very end, right? It's just barely alive. It says, this person is so gentle, he won't even snuff out the end of a, of a candle that's burning at the very end. A bruised reed, right? A really, really fragile thing. He's not even gonna come and break it. He's so gentle. There's something about this person that's gentle who's gonna do something. He says, he will bring forth justice faithfully. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till the whole earth, the coastlands. That's another word that means the nations all over the world. It says, till they are established in justice, that they wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord who created heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people who walk on it, and spirit to those who walk on it, which that's us. He's given us our breath and our spirit and everything else. He says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes of the blind. Okay, what is he talking about? You might already pick this up. He's talking about Jesus here. This is 700 years before Jesus comes on the scene, but he's already promised right here in the book of Isaiah. If you are an idol worshiper, if you're a person who is thinking you're getting away with your sin, here's the solution for you. God is sending his servant. Someone is gonna come and stand between you and God that you can put your faith and trust in, who's gonna live a perfect life in your place, never worshiping an idol, never sinning, never thinking he's gonna get away with sin, and then he gets punished for the sin that you thought you were gonna get away with so that you could have eternal life. That's the servant. That's who he's talking about right here. Point number three, look to Jesus to be your heroic savior. He's a heroic savior. He's a hero. Hero, someone that you don't deserve. You're in trouble. You've got a problem bigger than you can even deal with. We talked about that in Isaiah 25 and 26, right? The problem is death. God's gonna come and swallow up death forever. What are the means by which he will do that? This servant says he's gonna open the eyes of the blind to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. And if you had any doubts about this, look at verse eight. Isaiah 42, eight. I am the Lord, that is my name. I give my glory to no other. I'm not sharing it. I'm not giving it to you or to the idols. I'm not giving it to anybody. Nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you about them. He's saying, I'm telling you about Jesus before he comes because I want you to know he's coming. This text is actually quoted in the New Testament a couple times. In Matthew chapter 12, Matthew uses it. He uses like three verses here. Matthew 12, 18 to 20, he quotes this whole section. Not the whole section, but like the first three verses here. He quotes it. 
He says, Jesus came on the scene to do that. He sets up the passage. This is Matthew 12, 15. He says, Jesus, aware of this, that he was being opposed by some of the leaders, the Pharisees, he withdrew, he went away, and many followed him. And he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. Why would Jesus not want to get all this fame and attention? Why? Well, because he's doing something. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And then the quote, Isaiah 42, behold my servant, gentle. It's quoted about Jesus, that he's a light to the nations, right? Think about where you're sitting, okay? We're talking about Isaiah, who is a Jewish guy who lived 2,700 years ago, okay? And we're spending a Wednesday night in Orange County talking about what he wrote. Do you know why? Because we have a light that came to the nations, Jesus Christ. That's why we're talking about this. That's why we even know about this, because Jesus came. And he's a light to the nations, why you can be saved just because just even though you weren't born in a family that is Jewish, you can still be saved. That was hard for a lot of them to believe. Even some of the Jewish people didn't want to believe that at the beginning. But you can be saved. Even though you're born 2,700 years after this was written. You're born 200 years after Jesus was on the scene. You can be saved? How is that possible? Because Jesus is the light to the nations. Because he's bringing hope to people like me and you who are in our sin. Isaiah 43, check that out. Isaiah 43, verse one. It says, but now thus says the Lord, who created you, O Jacob, which is another word for these Israelites. It says, who formed you, O Israel. Which again, think about it. He says, who created you, who formed you. Look what he says not. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I've called you by name and you are mine. Jesus picks up on this language and he says, my sheep hear my voice. They, they, when I call, they know me. When you pass through the waters, when you have bad times, I'll be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Let me save you. This applies to every real Christian. If you're a Christian, this God has created you, formed you, and redeemed you. The New Testament says it like this. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. It says, we're supposed to praise God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Then it says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, before Isaiah was written, God chose you. That we, this whole group, these Christians, should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. He didn't go, eeny, meeny, miny, mo, catch a tiger by the toe, right? God, it wasn't like that. It wasn't like, okay, random, random, random. No, he formed, like, the, if you are a Christian, the whole purpose of your existence, like, the reason you exist is for God because God formed you, loved you, created you, redeemed you. It says, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons, according to, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. The purpose of his will. That's what we talked about before, Isaiah 46, that when he purposes, he does it. That's the difference between you and God. You can want to do something and purpose to do something, but not have the power to do it. That's impossible for God. He can't want something and, and purpose something and then have it fail. It just doesn't work for that for God like that because he has all the power. If he wor- purposes something, he makes it happen. Look in verse 7 of our text. Ty- look at... Isaiah 43, 7. Look what he says. Everyone who is called by my name, who I created, what does it say? For my glory, whom I formed and made. 
These people, it says, God made you for his glory. What does that mean? For God's honor, God's fame. That's why you exist. That's what he's saying. One more passage here in Isaiah. Look at Isaiah 45, verse 21. Isaiah 45. I know we've been jumping around here. The reason we put these together the way we did is I want you to see that God is in control of everything. What that means is, first of all, that he's in control of every detail. But that also means we're never going to get away with sin. But thirdly, it means he's offering salvation to us. Isaiah 45, look at verse 21. He's talking about them as though they're bringing gods to him, idols. He says, declare, present your case. Let them take counsel together. He says, it could be even a team effort. If all the idols want to get their heads together and, and talk, about, talk about God, they can do that. Obviously, they're not gods. He said, who told you this from long ago? Who declared it from of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there's no God besides me a righteous God and a savior. There is none besides me. Look at verse 22. Turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth, not just this little tiny people group in this little time period. He's like saying, hey, everybody out there in the world, that's talking about you and me. Turn, turn to Christ, be saved. All the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. You can't say, well, I, you know, I prefer the American God or I prefer, you know, the Mexican God or the Canadian God. Like, I, I don't know. No, there is one God. He's saying that I'm the only God. Whether you, whatever country you're in, whatever time period you're in, I am God and there is no other. Turn to me, all the ends of the earth, and be saved. By myself, I have sworn. God says, I promised from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that will not return empty to me. To God, he says, to me. Every knee shall bow and every tongue swear allegiance. What that means is that everyone one day will recognize that God is the king. Everyone. Every atheist, every person who follows any other religion, at one point in time, there will come a day when everyone recognizes that God is God. The New Testament puts it like this in Philippians chapter two. I think it's actually a quotation of this. Paul says about Jesus that, he's, that God has given Jesus the name above every name. He's exalted him so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father, whether people are alive, whether they're dead, whether they're in heaven, whether they're in hell. There will come a day when everybody says Jesus is the Lord. Jesus puts it like this in John 6, 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son, that's why I want that point is look. The idea is not that you're supposed to do a bunch of things to earn God's favor. You're supposed to look to Jesus, trust in Jesus. He's your solution. He's your hero. Jesus says, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him, trusts in him, should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Promise that God makes. Now, when God makes promises, here's the difference between when God makes a promise and when your parents make a promise. Here's the difference. When your parents make a promise, they have not accomplished it when they promise, right? They say, I promise we'll go to Disneyland. Here's what they, they can't control. They can't control the traffic. They can't control if Disneyland shuts down. Right? They can't control COVID. Right? They can't control any of that. So when they promise, it's limited and contingent on all these things going wrong. Okay? Here's the difference. God makes a promise. What is it contingent on? God. <laughs> right? Because he's in control. He's powerful. So if he says, look, everyone who turns to me believes in me, I will raise him up on the last day. Here's what that's saying. You can know with complete, full confidence that if you trust in Jesus for salvation with a whole heart, God will not despise you. He will not turn you away and you will be raised on the last day. 
You know that for sure because what God says is my, my counsel, my will, when I purpose it, it's done. And that's what he said. I'll raise him up on the last day. I said that Jesus is a heroic savior, but I want you to think of the last movie you watched where there was a hero and there's a villain. Think about that. Um, do you know that not everyone cheers for the hero? Have you noticed that? There are people in the movie who are not trying to have the hero win. What do you call those people, right? The villains. Or they're maybe on the villain's team. The villains are cool, though. You know, the villains, they got cool names and cool capes or whatever they're wearing, right? You know who, like, the dumbest people in those movies are? The, the henchmen of the villain, right? They always die first. You know what I'm talking about? Whether it's Star Wars or a Marvel movie, the henchmen of the villains, they're like the sorriest group, right? Well, when a hero comes, not everyone cheers for the hero. Same thing with Jesus. Not everyone will cheer for Jesus. That's why this world, most people in this world don't cheer for Jesus. But here's, here's the difference, okay? question is not are you cheering for Jesus, but are you on his side? Are you a person who's rightly aligned with him? Are you a person who said, I'm not going to live for my sin. I, I know that my sin will get caught. It, basically, it's as caught as it's ever going to be. It's out in the open before God. I confess my sin to God. That's what it means to confess your sin. It's like to take it from the darkness to the light. Say, God, this is what I've been doing. This is what I've been thinking. This is what I've been saying. God, here's what it is. I know you know it already, but I just want to tell you, I agree with you. It's evil. It's wicked. And God, I don't want to do it anymore. God, please help me not do it. I need to live for you. Help me live for you. I can't do it on my own. You need to empower me. God, please hear my prayer. Like that's, that's what happens when you confess your sin. Right? Not only do you say, oh, it's wrong. I shouldn't do it. You tell God what you did. And then you say, God, I'm not going to do it again. God, help me not do it again. And then you purpose not to do it again. He says here, with this hero idea, that if you're not on God's right side, that's what he says in James 4. He says, if you're going to make a friend with the world, you're going to get on the other side, you make God your enemy. Right? The people who the heroes against, they're called the villains. That's why 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 says, there's one God and there's one mediator, one person who stands between God and man. That's Jesus. That was true 2,000 years ago. That's true today. There's one God and there's one mediator. He is your only hope. He's your hero. He should be your hero. Because for some of you, he's not your hero. He's the villain that's coming to, to attack your side. The reality is, he's never the villain. But maybe some of us are on the villain side. I want you to think about that. We're going to talk about that in small groups a little bit. What does it mean to have a right relationship with God? What does it mean to believe that there's one God? What are the implications of that? Ultimately, it means we need to be rightly aligned with that God. We don't want to be on his bad side. We don't get on his good side by trying really hard. We get on his good side by looking to the Son, believing in him, trusting in him. He says he'll forgive you. Let's pray about that right now. God, we know that you are the only God. There's no other God besides you. God, you do amazing things so that everyone will know that you're God. Please help us see that. Pray that we'd respond in faith to your call of repentance. Pray that we'd turn around from our sin, that we wouldn't think we'd get away with it. That you'd cause us to live in righteousness, that you'd empower us by your spirit, and that you would get glory through everything that happens here tonight. Everything that happens in our lives, really this whole week, for the rest of our lives, we want to just live for you. You're the only God. You deserve all of our worship. I pray that we wouldn't give it to anything else, any lesser glory, any lesser God or any idol we have in our heart. I pray we wouldn't give it to that. 